as you may have guessed from our Bible reading, we'll be continuing our series in the book of James this morning. But before we turn our Bibles there, let us pray and seek God's blessing. Heavenly Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray for you to be here amongst us at work in our hearts. And Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would clear our minds from any distractions and give us ears to hear and and a heart ready to receive. May we hear from you through your word this morning and may you convict and, and challenge us where we need it, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to be thinking about the world's smallest yet largest troublemaker, the tongue. Turn back with me to James chapter 3. If you flicked away from that, it's on page 1012, James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of a pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a, a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of God. Now it could be said that there is no clearer indicator as to what's going on in someone's heart than what comes out of a person's mouth. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue is often the window through to the heart, isn't it? Tongue was originally created to be an organ of God's praise. But since the fall has in many ways become a weapon used for unrighteousness. This morning as we arrive in the third chapter of the, the book of James, James presents us with the idea that the tongue provides us with yet another test of a living faith. Now, if you've been with us throughout our series in this letter, you'll remember in, in previous passages that James has already mentioned some of the other indicators of authentic faith, hasn't he? In a letter packed full of application for the Christian, James has been keen to, 
remind his readers that our faith is not a faith of, of theory or head knowledge, but it's instead a living faith, an active faith, a life of application. We are to be doers as well as hearers of the word. The Bible is clear, isn't it, that a true, authentic, living faith bears fruit. Faith without works is dead. We remember that from last time, don't we? In James, in the previous two chapters to where we arrive this morning, has provided some examples of how that typically shows up in a believer's life. And these works include how a, a Christian endures trials. We, we read about that in chapter 1. It will show up in a believer's humility and a, and a Christian's obedience to, to Scripture. It will be revealed in a believer's loving concern for the, for the needy without showing partiality. It will show up by the believer's life being a pattern of good works with a motive of wanting to glorify the Lord. All things that we've thought about throughout this series so far. And now as we arrive in chapter 3, James in our, in our passage this morning wants to show his readers that an authentic faith will also show up in the way in how the Christian speaks. Now I'm certain that every single one of us here this morning have been on both a receiving end as well as the provider of wicked words. There may be some here that have felt that more dramatically than others and there's no sadder place than when that shows up in the local church. Now according to John MacArthur on any given day we say about 30,000 words and that presents us with a lot of opportunities to sin in how we speak doesn't it but let's be honest most of us don't need 30,000 words to do that do we we know from our lived experiences that sometimes it can take just one or two words to completely destroy someone to ruin a relationship that's been built over decades how many times have words ruined marriages destroyed churches and broken families? How many times have words started wars? It's true that our untamed tongues can be weapons when they are not brought under control. And what's the reason? Well, the reason is that the tongue is attached to a heart that still wrestles with sin. Now this morning we'll be seeing what the Bible says about taming the tongue, but first we, we do so in the context of his letter before we take a look at his wider application for us. As Christians who were created to worship and to glorify the Lord in all we do, we should all strive for the control of our tongues, and this is true for every single Christian. As Christians, we've been made to, to glorify the Lord, and the words that we use and how we say them are included in this, aren't they? If you remember in previous studies, James has already pointed this out a couple of times in this very letter. In verse 19 of chapter 1, if you're still there, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Then in verse 26 of the same chapter, if anyone, anyone, thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. We remember that James is writing this letter with a pastor's heart, isn't it? You remember that last time. 
The author James knew many of the recipients of his letter by name. He would have loved them and prayed for them and served shoulder to shoulder with many of them. He most likely had the scars from where these very people had said sinful things to or about him and could probably tell of times where he has not controlled his tongue with them. And it's with that pastor's heart that he wants to, to scratch where he knows there is an itch, as do we this morning. Just like us, his readers were known to not always be wise with their tongues, and we can see that in this very letter. Now scan your eyes across the page to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then read verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, for one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges for law. And it begs a question, doesn't it? How can it be that it's the same tongue that prays out loud and sings songs of worship and encourages and, and blesses other Christians that is capable of speaking evil against the very same people that it blesses? It's the same muscle, the same tongue. And it's because of total depravity. Every aspect of this world has been tainted with sin, hasn't it? But we've got to know, this doesn't diminish our responsibility. Words and the way that we choose to use them are important, aren't they? Language and the power of speech can be one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And if you're here this morning as a born-again believer, it was words, either written or said out loud, that led you to know your Saviour, wasn't it? Words of a vehicle that the Lord uses to save sinners. And how precious these words are. Words are used to preach for word and to, to lead for lost to Christ. The ability to speak words is the ability to encourage and to build one another up in the Lord. And yet we can take this ability and, and its power for both good and evil for granted, can't we? And it's also an area where we can become way too complacent. Maybe we at times have caught ourselves tearing somebody else down and how easy it is to, to find ourselves entertained by gossip. And it can be far too easy to, to be casual about this, but the Lord takes this very seriously. Matthew's Gospel, we are told in chapter 12 that on the day of judgment, people would give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Is the norm in how we speak, both in public and in private, consistent with the fact that we are born again, spirit-filled children of God? Are our words and is our profession of faith consistent? It's a challenge, isn't it? If we were to at random have the ability to, to choose one of us here this morning and then we're able to display everything that you've said over the last week on the screen behind me, would you begin to squirm? I know I would. 
have there been times where we have gossiped about someone and we lacked grace in our speech and have we been unkind? But if we'd squirm at the thought of our brothers and sisters seeing our words this morning, how much more would we be ashamed to pause and remember that the Lord has heard every careless word? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that we speak. But let's just make sure that we're hearing this correctly because we are not saying that we earn our salvation by perfecting the way that we talk. Not at all. That's putting the cart before the horse. That would be some sort of works-based gospel, wouldn't it? No, let us be clear because we know that as Bible-believing Christians, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's then that Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then starts to provide evidence of that salvation having taken place. The believer then begins to bear fruit, and that also shows up in how we typically speak. The pattern and the the tendency of how we use our words become an indicator of that salvation having already taken place. If you like, our tongue is a bit like the the speedometer of a car. It's like a gauge to show what's really going on under the bonnet. In Luke 6, we're told, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. And we can see this, can't we? That the tongue is one of the ways that we can see how we are doing spiritually. And if we find ourselves in a pattern of sinning in this way, then we need to repent. We need to bring it before the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. Now, I said at the beginning, I want to make sure that we are reading our passage in context and we want to follow the trail of thought that James has and what his intentions were with his original readers. We call this authorial intent, don't we? And in doing this, when we read our Bible passage in context, we can see that within our specific passage this morning, James is talking about a very specific type of person's tongue. And that's the tongue of those that teach. James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We can see here, can't we, that James's first concern is with the speech of those that teach the Bible. And why is that? It's because it was and still is today that false teachers that create chaos within the church. When the church loses its pulpit, that so-called church becomes a very dangerous place to be. And equally, this was extremely important 2,000 years ago when this letter was written. 2,000 years ago, you got to think the canon of scripture that we have today was not complete. It wasn't the 66 books that we have today neatly bound together. No, the teaching of Jesus at this time was, was passed around orally. It was given from one person to another. 
much of a doctrine that we have today had yet to be written down as, as scripture. So how important were the words from those that talked? Well, they were crucial, weren't they? Today, we encourage everyone to have open Bibles on your laps whilst listening to someone preach. And it's in this way that you can make sure that what you are being taught is in context and to protect yourselves from falling into error. But most believers in the first century didn't have that luxury. At a time where the Old Testament scrolls containing scripture were rare and expensive, people relied on the teachers to tell them what they said. They were literally, literally relying on the teachers' tongues. Now, if you're a reader of church history, you'll know that this continued to be a problem before the Protestant Reformation for 1,500 years. Many of you will know that scripture was intentionally kept away from the common man and instead was often taught incorrectly by one or two who had access. And it's with this in mind that these teachers in the first century become the point of contact for all believers because it's the only way that they could learn the Bible and to, to know how to apply it in their own lives. And it's that application that we see all over this letter, isn't it? That's what James has been doing throughout his letter so far. Verse after verse of sound instruction and application. But one problem was that not all of the teachers were like James. The problem then, like the problem today, is that not everything that is taught from some pulpits are true. It's why all but two of the New Testament books warn about false teachers, isn't it? Just because a group gets together to call themselves a church doesn't mean that they really are. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15. And this is true in the pew as it is up here because um, behind the pulpit, isn't it? Because it's very easy for false teaching to, to find its way into a church for a heretical book being passed around the congregation or for people to start recommending certain ministries or teachers on the internet or on the TV that are all set up to lead people into error. Now they may look and sound like sheep, but inwardly they are wolves. And this means that these false teachers often come disguised. They may have the outward appearance of being the real deal, but their words are designed to lead people astray. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. It's why we have to be so diligent in our studies, isn't it? It's crucial that we know and understand the truth. We have to be trained in discernment to protect ourselves from being fooled. Today, false teachers often wear the smartest suits and they have the kindest looking smiles. But brothers and sisters, we must not be fooled. These false teachers were driven by very worldly motivations or as the Apostle Paul called it, selfish ambitions. And isn't that a picture of today? As multi-millionaire so-called pastors continue to ask you to sow into their ministries under the lie that you'll receive tenfold by God for doing so. False teachers with false words tickling their listeners' ears. 
that these men, just like what happened in Galatia, would sneak into these churches. They'd look to impress people with the idea of taking up leading positions within the church before using their tongues to create maximum damage, to distort the very gospel that saves. We know, don't we? We've said it before, a droplet of poison in a barrel of fresh water will kill all that drinks it. It's true that teaching the Bible can be a dangerous business. It's why James says, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. James, like the Apostle Paul, taught that people should not rush to be teachers. And we have to remember what was happening at this time. Many of these believers were moving out of Israel, weren't they? And they were leaving their lives behind, including careers and successful businesses. And whereas today a lot of kids dream of becoming professional footballers, back in the first century, becoming a, a rabbi or a teacher was very prestigious. These teachers had great influence. It would have been tempting in the flesh to, to pursue such a role. But James also knew the risk of having a non-biblically qualified man in a teaching position like this. And in its context, if you remember back to the last time we were in James, our passage follows not long after the well-known passage talking about faith and works, doesn't it? James knows that as his hearers were digesting what he had just said in chapter 2 about works, that as they read it, they will start to then think about one of the most honourable works, and that is the work of a teacher. And it's as if James runs ahead of him and says, whoa, 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 slow down. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The James here, after telling the dispersed believers that a true, authentic faith will produce the fruit of works, doesn't want his words to result in any readers to, to rush off and take on the role of teacher if they're not qualified, nor called by God to do so. And James knows, as well as anyone, the damage that having unqualified teachers distorting the gospel can have. It was James, wasn't it, that was part of the group in trying to unravel the mess at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It's why teachers will be judged with greater strictness. They have the potential to not only make a shipwreck of their own faith, but can lead others away from the truth as well. Let them be accursed, says Paul. We need to take teaching seriously, and if you are privileged to ever find yourself in a the teaching moment we want to find ourselves to to be prepared to be equipped and to be ready to tell the truth in love if we're going to speak about the things of god to to people then we want to be diligent and strive to to do so accurately don't we first peter chapter 3 verse 15 we're to always be prepared to to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet to do it with gentleness and respect. And being prepared means that we should know ahead of time what we'd say. Now this may seem obvious, but you or I wouldn't go into a business meeting without preparing, would we? Before going in, we would want to know all about the details of our product. We'd want to be familiar with our neighbours. If any of you have watched Dragon's Den, it's a good example of this, isn't it? To, to see what happens when somebody hasn't prepared it might make great tv but you can't help but feel for the person standing there red-cheeked and sweating away as if they could wish that they could turn back time to 
to go back and prepare properly. And as they stand there and as they're asked how many products that they sold last year or details about their cash flow forecast, any sign of not being prepared, then the, the dragon will quickly declare themselves out. How much more important then for us who speak on behalf of the Lord to be prepared. May what we say be true and may we be found prepared. And then as we move on, we are given these pictures as examples, aren't we? Bits to bits used to control horses and, and rudders. And what do these things have in common? Well, they are all small, aren't they? Just like our tongues, they are also very powerful. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. In the same way, we should be eager to have Christ sanctify our hearts and to control our mouths instead of speaking out every time a, a thoughtless word comes to mind. Verse 4, look at the ships, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Then verse 5, the great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Again, this is something the original recipients knew only too well from their lived experience. During the dry season in Israel, the grass and the, the dried up shrubs were as dry as explosive tinder. You can imagine, can't you? One small spark had the potential to spread a a wildfire and cause absolute chaos. And we've seen times when our words can do that, right? We must be wise in how we use our words and we must recognize the spiritual health of the heart that they are coming from. So as we draw to a close this morning, let us remind ourselves that the tongue is not the root cause of our evil words. The root is our heart. Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Trying to tame the tongue without first having God deal with our hearts is backwards, isn't it? As a case of dealing with the symptom rather than the cause. To deal with the tongue firstly means that we must have the Lord deal with our hearts. A heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh is a heart that mourns over our sinful words. And as we finish this morning, let us hear from Puritan Thomas Watson on this verse. He says, To allow ourselves in the abuse of the tongue cannot stand with grace. I know a born-again believer may sometimes speak unadvisedly with his lips. He may fly out in words, be in a passion, but he does not allow himself in it. When his passion is over, he weeps. Let's pray.